So uh, it's good to be back in Crown Heights. The topic tonight is, I love the topic. I, didn't, I can't take credit for it. I didn't write the topic. Parenting 2.0, I agreed with the topic. Not just I agreed to deliver a talk on the topic. I saw the topic and said, I wish I had written that topic. Parenting 2.0, raising the children of the Geula. And I love that topic, and I love it for this audience. I love it for Crown Heights. And I know we're online, and there are people from all over the world who are watching who are not from Crown Heights and who are not from Chabad and may, have not, may not have learned all of the Rebbe Sichas. But if you'll forgive me, I'm in Crown Heights now, so if you are watching online, I'm speaking to the camera saying that, uh, just understand my audience. I'm going to use shorthand for a lot of stuff that this crowd is familiar with already because I don't want to waste a lot of time explaining a lot of background that this crowd should already be familiar with and I want to just jump right into the radical, revolutionary, exciting stuff that... Uh, the Rebbe taught us that we could be implementing right now in our, in our homes. You know, sometimes you get on your uh, phone or on your computer where it says there is a software update available and ready to be installed. Uh, and then you have a, an option, right? I don't remember what the other options are. I just the only the option that I remember is the one that I always push. Remind me later. Very good. <laughs> Remind me later. That's right. So until it says something like critical system update, and uh, your your machine failed to uh, operate, it cannot be opened until you install this uh, this critical system update. So here's what I want to tell you. Chinuch is different today. I mean, you don't need a guy to stand up behind a podium with a microphone to let you know that. I'm just confirming what you see. Chinuch is different today. But uh, there are some critical systems updates, some new software that is available and ready to be installed. And if you, like I, ever uh, pressed remind me later, or I'll get around to it, then maybe tonight, what can come from tonight is that, and again, I'm saying I'm speaking to Crown Heights, speaking to Lubavitch, maybe tonight we can decide that what the Rebbe taught us, some of the radical stuff that the Rebbe explained about children and about education, some of that stuff can already be installed into our uh, updated system. So uh, th th there, was a, there was a Yashalmi who used to go collect money in the United States. He used to come to New York and he had a balabas, a business owner who had a, an office in Manhattan. So this Yashalmi used to come to this office in Manhattan. He would see the the American Jew, and he would fundraise for an orphanage in Yerushalayim. And this uh, American Jew 
the guy with the, the corner office in the fancy building in Manhattan, he felt very proud that he was involved in supporting an orphanage in, uh, in Yerushalayim. And every month he would write a check and he would put the check in the mail. He would proudly send his check to the address of the orphanage in Yerushalayim. He did this for years. And then finally, one day, he took a trip to Eretz Yisrael, and he went on a tour, and they took him to Yerushalayim, and when he was, at the, he was in Yerushalayim, he asked the tour guide, where is this address? There's an orphanage there. And the, the tour guide said, oh, this, this address is not far from here. So he found a time when the tour was doing something else. He could break away from them for a, a few minutes, and he walked to the address where the orphanage was that he was supporting for so many years. And he gets to the address, he looks around, looking for a building, looking for something that looks like an orphanage. And uh, it's an apartment in a building. And uh, he looks at the address. This is, he knows this address. He's written it hundreds of times. Every month he sends a check there to that address. And he doesn't see an orphanage. He sees an apartment. He puts his ear to the door. He hears there's people inside, a family is living there. And he realizes this is this guy's house. This is where this Yushalmi lives. So he, he knocks on the door. And who answers the door? It's this Yushalmi, this guy who he saw in his office who would come to him every year and update him about the, about the progress of the orphanage, about the children. And the American Jew says, well, what are you doing? I finally show up, and I see this is, this is not an orphanage. This is your house. You live here with your, with your family. Have I been supporting an orphanage? Or I'm sending money to you. This is for you. So Yishalmi says to the American Jew, he says, look around. You see, there are kids here? He says, yeah, I see. There's kids here. These are your kids. This is your family. He says, okay. So can I ask you a question? He says, go ahead and ask me a question. He says, what does it hurt you if these orphans have parents. <laughs> it's a deep joke. I only tell deep jokes. I don't tell funny jokes, so I better tell deep ones. What does it hurt you if these orphans have parents? Meaning to say, you felt good when you were sending money to these children when you thought that they didn't have parents. But now you find out you're supporting these children, same children you thought you were supporting. Nabuch, they have parents. Now you, you're not so excited about supporting them. Sometimes when the old way is so clearly not working with a particular child, we give up and we say, I have no choice. What can I do? There's nothing left to do. He's not responding to the old methods. Trust me, I tried. And we admit defeat and we say, all right, Nebuch, what can I do? I, there's nothing left to do. Just, just love him. Because there's such a crisis, and I don't know how to respond to the crisis. I have no tools left. What can I do? I have nothing left. All I can do is love him. 
why do we have to wait until that point where out of desperation we say the old methods don't work and we're ready just to love and to accept our children as they are? What's wrong if these children are orphans who have parents? What's wrong if these OTD kids didn't fry out yet? What's wrong if these kids in crisis are still emotionally, socially, mentally, spiritually healthy? We're not ready to come to their aid if they haven't hit rock bottom yet? So sometimes the reason that a system stops working for some people is that it just doesn't work for those people. Other times a system stops working for some people because those people are the canary in the coal mine. You know about the canary in the coal mine. In the old days when they used to open up a new area in a mine, so it was very dangerous, they could release gas. There's gas in the coal mine which is poisonous, it's fatal. The problem is that it's tasteless, it's odorless, it's colorless, you can't smell it, you can't taste it, you can't see it. So how are you supposed to know that you're breathing this poisonous gas? So the miners used to bring down into the mine a canary, a real canary, an actual canary. And the canary likes to tweet, 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 and he makes noises all day. But then all of a sudden, if the miners would realize, uh-oh, what happened? The canary's not tweeting anymore. The canary got real quiet. Uh-oh, canary's sleeping on the bottom of his cage. No, he's not sleeping. He passed out. He just, he got poisoned. Let's get out of here. And then they would clear out of the mine. So how did the canary know that there was poisonous gas in the mine? Was the canary a toxicologist? That's somebody who studies poison. Now, the canary was not a toxicologist. The canary just dies from the same thing that kills people before the people die from it. The same thing that affects everyone else affects him. It just affects him first. So sometimes the reason an old system doesn't work for some people anymore is because it stopped working. And it's just a matter of time before the miners will meet the same fate as the canary. And I'm not here to get into a whole discussion, although I probably should, and I could make a whole lecture just on this topic about our most sensitive children, about our sensitive souls, about the types of children who are the most vulnerable and the ones who are most likely to be disillusioned. And it's not who we normally predict. I could give you a whole talk about that. That's not really my point tonight. My point tonight is to say that a system update has been in order for a long time. I think everyone knows it. And anyone who doesn't agree to it yet, it's just a matter of time. What I want to tell you
is that the system update was given a long time ago. Crown Heitzers, inside baseball. Not even the Sichas of Nun Aleph Nun Base. I can go back even further than that. I can go to regular Lakute Sichas. Chelik Tezvov, Parshas Vayero, which is based on Fabrengans from the Lamids, from the Lamids, from the 1970s. From Lamed Vov and Lamed Zion. They put together a few sichas when they edited that sicha. So the Rebbe was saying this since the 1970s. What did the Rebbe say? We know a famous story about the Rebbe Rashab. Again, this is Crown Heights. I'm not going to say Rabbi Sholom Dov Bear, the fifth rabbi of, no, Rebbe Rashab. The Rebbe Rashab was four or five years old, and it was the, the week of his birthday, actually. His birthday is Chof Cheshvan, and that's usually the week of Parsha's Vayera, and apparently they were learning the weekly Parsha in school. And he came home, and he was crying, and he, he spoke to his Zayde, the Tzemach Tzedek. And he said, I learned Vayera Elov Havaya, that the Eibishter revealed himself to Avram Avinu. And I want to know, why doesn't the Eibishter reveal himself to me? Beautiful story. And the Tamech gave an answer. We could talk about the answer as well. Let's first, let's talk about the question, the complaint. Beautiful story. And, and, and how do you read a story like this? Well, I'll tell you conventional wisdom, the way to read a story like this is that it's a story about an exceptional person, the Rebbe Rashab. He was a Rebbe, he was a Tzaddik, a Rebbe, the son of a Rebbe, the grandson of a Rebbe, raised by both his father and grandfather, who were both Rebbes. And due to his exceptional spiritual sensitivity and his exceptional upbringing, he had a feeling that is quite unusual, if not absolutely unique, among four or five-year-olds. He had a feeling that he wanted Hashem to reveal himself to him, and it was such a powerful feeling that it caused him to, to cry. What an amazing tzaddik. That's the conventional way of telling that story. The Rebbe took the story and said, uh, yeah, but there's another point. And the point really is not about the Rebbe Rashab. The point is about you and about your child. This isn't a story about a special tzaddik, the son of a tzaddik. This is a story about all of us. And the Rebbe explained. The Rebbe's logic is quite unique to the Rebbe. It's one of the Rebbe's trademarks. The Rebbe says, a Rebbe, on one hand, is so different from everyone else. He's just an elevated person. 
On the other hand, a Rebbe is a Neshama Klolis. He's connected to all of us. So something that happens to such a Neshama Klolis is really reflective of something that's happening to Klal Yisrael. And especially if that story about the Neshama Klolis was given over publicly and made known to all of us, then that even further reinforces the fact that this isn't just a story about the greatness of the tzaddik, this is a story about us. So the Rebbe proceeds to explain that the Rebbe Rashab was Peseach as Hatziner. He opened up a new conduit, a new pipeline, that from that time on, every child, even a four or five-year-old child, can have a genuine spiritual thirst that is so powerful that it can even move them to tears. And therefore, old modes of chinuch, tried and true, time-honored, hallowed methods of child-rearing and education are no longer applicable, they're outdated, they're obsolete. There are critical system software updates. That although, the Rebbe says this, that although the Rabbim explains, Rebbe indicates a couple of sources where the Rabbim speaks about this. One of them is in the Pirish Lamishnayas, in the portion of Sanhedrin known as Chelek, Kol Yisrael Yeshlem Chelek Leilam Haba, which is one of the 12 psukim, I'm sure you know. And over there, because it's speaking about Elam Haba, it's speaking about reward in the world to come, so the, the Rambam explains how to teach people about this concept, and the, the Rambam sort of laments that it's true that the real re reason to serve Hashem is altruistically, l'shma, to serve Hashem for, for its own sake. However, people aren't really on that level, and so it's a necessary evil that we speak to them about payoff, and especially, he says, children, and he, and, and, and he, it, he, he describes the process, the Rambam describes the process in Pirish Lomishnayis. He says that first you get the children motivated, telling them if they'll learn Torah, you're going to give them food. He says you give them honey and nuts and, you know, kind of stuff that they ate back in the Rambam's time. And then after they grow out of that, what do you do? You give them, he says, shoes. You promise them shoes and clothing. And then they grow out of that, you promise them money. By the way, if you want to be good at the old method of bribery, this is the way that, I, that I'm telling you how to do it. Okay, so then they grow out of the food, they, and then the, the, the food bribes don't work, so then you go to uh, clothing bribes, and then you go to money, right? No, no gifts, just checks, just cash, right? Uh, and, and then when they grow out of that, he says usually around adulthood, um, they grow out of that, that's not even enough, so then the new taiva becomes honor. You tell them, learn Torah so that you'll be called rabbi, and you'll be respected, and they'll give you a microphone, you get to talk, people will listen, it'll feel good. So that becomes the new, the new bribe. And it describes very clearly how to do it. 
Also the Rambam, in another place, which we just learned recently in Mishnah Torah. We just started over the Mishnah Torah, Lag Boimer. And uh, I encourage everyone, again, Crown Heights, <laughs> that uh, learning Rambam every day is an incredible lifeline. And learning Sefer mitzvahs at the very least, but I also want to encourage, I don't think there's any indication, and in fact there's indications to the contrary, that women actually can and should learn more than Sefer mitzvahs. One paddock, even three prakim. If that's something you'd like to talk about further, we can talk about it, but definitely that's something that should be encouraged. And uh, let me put it this way. If anyone, if any woman in Crown Heights meets another woman at a chasana, and she says to her friend that she learns Gimel Prakim, what kind of a reaction is she going to get? Right? Interesting, interesting, right? So my, I would call it success of tonight, that at least in Crown Heights, if a woman tells another woman she's learning Gimel Prakim, it should be, that's cool, I wish I did that. That's not yet the reaction, but I would like to be part of making that become the reaction. And you guys, don't look at me funny. You know exactly what I'm saying. I'm 100% accurate, okay? I, all right. And those who are in uh, the Parsha that I'm in for, for, for your kids, if you heard that a girl for your son was learning Gimel Prokim, right? Mm -hmm. Gimel Prokim, right? That should be like, wow, we got to look more into her. Gimel Prokim. Okay, so... Guys know exactly. What I'm, don't don't pretend not to understand me. I know my orphans joke wasn't funny, but this is funny because it's true. It's definitely true. It's social. It's biting social commentary, which you don't hear a lot of in these parts. At any rate, <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, we just learned in Gimel Prokim recently in Hilchas Chova. The Ramam talks about serving Hashem for its own sake and serving Hashem out of love. But then he does mention, he says, Nebuch, there are some people that they have to be bribed. He says, uh, children need to be bribed. You know, also the Ramam says women. Women, women also are not going to serve Hashem for its own sake, so they also need to be bribed. You're, you're okay with that statement? You're okay with the bribe, <laughs> just not with the implication. Okay, not with the implication. With the bribe, you'll take the bribe. <laughs> I would have done it anyway, but thanks for the bribe. Okay. So, but the Rebbe says that clearly this isn't the case today. So maybe it was the case once upon a time. I mean, I'll ask you the woman part because there's a, a room full of women. Do you feel that that's true about you? So you yourself our testimony to the fact that this description of human nature is no longer accurate. And I can say, God forbid, how can you say that Rambam, anything that Rambam said is tighter? Okay, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Let's talk about that's That's a fair reaction. That's a valid reaction. In fact, I would be, I would be uh, frightened if you didn't say that. If you didn't, hold on a second. What are you saying? That the Rambam is obsolete? You're right. As good, God-fearing Jews who revere the Chachomim, that is, that is absolutely the reaction you should have. So I'm going to tell you what it says. The Rambam was right, he is right, he will always be right. 
when speaking about certain conditions. However, sometimes conditions change. And there is such a concept, the Rebbe speaks about this, as nishtanu hativim, and those are the words that the Rebbe uses, nishtanu hativim, that nature has changed. And this isn't something that the Lubavitcher Rebbe invented, the concept of nishtanu hativim, that human nature can change. The Rebbe actually goes to great lengths to cite precedent in halacha. The Rebbe cites the, the Ramah, in, uh, in, in, in Ebena Ezer, when the Ramah speaks about certain premature births that Chazal tell us are not viable. And it has a bearing on halacha. And the Ramah says, but we see today, he says, we see for ourselves that that's not the case, so how do you explain it? He says, nishtanu ativim. Human nature changed. Or the Rebbe cites the, the Mogen Avram, in uh, when it speaks about certain dietary restrictions that are based on danger, that are based on sakana. And he says, you see that it's not a sakana, it's not dangerous anymore. Okay, nishtanu ativim. So the Rebbe explains that nature changed and what used to work on children doesn't work anymore. What used to work on children doesn't work anymore. Ever since the Rebbe Rashab <laughs> opened up the pipeline, when did that happen? I mean, the Rebbe Rashab was born Tafresh uh, Chof Aleph. So 1860, well, it was, it was Chof Cheshvin, so it was still the last months of 1860. So he would have been four or five around 1864, 1865. And the Rebbe said it wasn't just that it happened to the Rebbe but it was that the story was then publicized by the Rebbe Rashab's son, by the Fedek Rebbe. So the Fedek Rebbe was, his Nesias was until, until Yud Shvat, till 1950. So let's just say like this, roughly, somewhere between 1864 and 1950, something changed. Now I want to say something to you. Anyone who has so much as taken a junior high, high school, uh, or basic history class, American history class, or even world history, or really, the, country, the history of any country in the, on this earth, if you would ask them, were there great changes between 1864 and 1950? Not only there were great changes, but probably the greatest changes and the most rapid change that ever took place in history took place during that time. You're talking about humanity going from basically the same technology that they had for millennia to having jets that could fly across the world in hours and, and, and computers that could connect people on different sides of the earth instantaneously. All that happened in a, ma in a matter of decades. 
And it keeps happening. It's, 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 it's continuing. It's not stopping. It's not slowing down. It's only speeding up. So think about it like this. From, 19, from 1860 till 1950, roughly. I'm not asking you to come up with a theory. I'm not asking you to form a hypothesis. But just in a very informal way, right here and now. Without thinking too much about this, would it make sense if I were to say to you that whatever the going rate for a bribe for a child was throughout history radically changed over those decades? Oh, it absolutely did. Because today, children are so overstimulated. They have so much access to dopamine hits that it's almost impossible to get their attention. So we're using outmoded, obsolete tools trying to compete for their attention and gratification. A child from a hundred years ago, I met a Rusa Shayid who told me he grew up in Russia. He was a kid in the 30s. And that his greatest birthday, his greatest birthday, he remembers, is that his father saved for a year to buy him the most impressive birthday present, an orange. Try to give an orange to a kid in Brooklyn in 2022. Forget about for his birthday. He says, can I have a snack? Here's an orange. <laughs> when do you have to speak about an orange? That, I think there's some oranges in the fridge, right? Because you wanted to be healthy, so you bought oranges, and you put them in that drawer in the fridge that never gets opened. Then you throw them all out when they get the white fuzz on them in a month. So that you're throwing out white fuzz, 20 oranges of white fuzz that 70, 80 years ago, that made some child's life. That was his warmest, most beautiful childhood memory, the orange. So don't tell me that the world hasn't changed radically and that which stimulates and gratifies children, even on the most basic level, don't tell me it hasn't changed. It's changed. And then you factor into it technology. Forget about social media. I'm not even talking about becoming addicted to the likes and the hearts and the thumbs ups. And the FOMO, the fear of messing, uh, missing out, and that you have to constantly refresh, refresh, refresh. Even leave that out. Just the little gadgets. No internet. No internet. Just the little gadgets. And you push a little button, poing. A little star makes a little poing. A little fairy dust noise. Imagine a child from the 1860s. You put him in a room with one of those. It's like they give the cocaine to the monkeys and they become addicts. You know that experiment? Imagine you take a child from the 1860s from Russia. And you give him a little toy. You can push it and make poing. You just... Within a day, he'd be sitting in the corner, poing, poing, poing. That would be it. It would be the end of that. No, Yasuo is not coming out of the corner. He's just poing, poing. He's addicted to the poing. Okay? 
So it's a, it's a miracle that the kids even get up from those machines. But you know why they get up from the machine? Because they have stimulus somewhere else. They have so much stimulus. So much stimulus. We're overstimulated. Pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. Luxury. Constant luxury. An orange isn't an orange anymore. A cake isn't a cake. We're pushing wired differently. And you're going to say it's because, you know, nature or nurture. I don't know. I'm not a neurologist. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not an anthropologist. I don't know if it was chicken or egg. I don't know how it happened. But people are wired differently. Take anyone from today and give them a CAT scan and take someone from 1860 and you tell me their brains aren't wired differently. Of course that we know. We know what our machines do to the wiring in our brains. And I don't want this to turn into technology because that's always the easy pitchforks and torches uh, cause. Technology. Forget about the technology. Forget about the technology. Again, the orange. Just the fact that an orange doesn't get anyone here excited. You, you wanna, there's a table over there full of cut fruit. Nobody touched it. Well, you're on a diet. Okay. <laughs> you know, do you know that pineapples used to be rented because they were so luxurious. Pineapples were so luxurious and rare. You didn't buy them and eat them. No one would do that. Pineapple cost like a car. You would rent it for a party and you would put it out as a centerpiece with your rich friends. I'm you can go Google, you go look it up. So not, yeah, not so long ago, a pineapple was like the guy in the parking lot at the Hassanan Great Neck carving the swan ice sculpture with the chainsaw. You know what I'm talking about, right? You guys don't go to the right Hassanah, so you never saw that. That was what a pineapple was like 60 years ago. And now there's a table full of pineapples. Mango, oranges, grapes, strawberries, just sitting there. No one's going to go to it. Especially not after I drew so much attention to it. Nobody's going to go to it. The one woman who was going to put some in a napkin and put it in her purse. Now she's going to have to wait 20 minutes after the event till everyone leaves. But I want to tell you something. Shemzichnit. For your children, you should do anything. Wrap that fruit in a napkin and put it in your purse, and I will applaud you. And I say that with all sincerity. Nishtanuativim, <sighs> we're wired differently. So you think about trying to bribe a kid today, the reward and punishment stuff. I don't make enough. I don't have enough wealth to bribe a child of 2022. What could I do that would be the equivalent of an orange for millennia? I would have to rent a hot air balloon and put a pony on the hot air balloon and fly over giant stadium with 10,000 with a 10,000 piece marching band that would spell out the kid's name 
And he would be like, cool. <laughs> you want to say a Pusik? Lost interest. Okay. You had that. You had a window. You had a tenth of a second. You had that window. <sighs> Listen, ladies. When Mashiach comes, one of the things that's going to happen is that madonim, delicacies, the Rambam says this, the end of Mishnah Torah, that when Mashiach comes, madonim, delicacies, are going to be metzuyim ka'afar. They're going to be as plentiful as dust. So actually we're living in pre-Messianic times. We're living on the cusp of a new era where material bounty will be so plentiful that it'll be as plentiful as dust, meaning not a rarity. And as the Rebbe pointed out, that description that Ambam uses is very apt. It's not just quantitatively, it's qualitatively. The delicacies will be as plentiful as dust, quantitatively, but also qualitatively about as interesting. When Mashiach comes, and you could say, oh, because we'll be on such an elevated level, we won't care about such bounty. And I'll tell you, yeah, maybe that too, but also it'll just be so plentiful, it'll be boring. In fact, I'm not even predicting anything. I'm telling you today's news. It's already so plentiful that it's boring. What do you want to eat? And then you go and you look. Too many choices, too many restaurants to order from. Well, come on, it's 9.30. we got to order something. And then what do you do? Can't make up your mind. You order two different entrees for everybody, and you end up throwing it out. Or if you're Jewish, you keep it in the fridge for a week, and then you throw it out. Baltashchis. Baltashchis is only if you throw out edible food. But if you put it in the fridge until it rots and then gets the white fuzz and then you... And I want to tell you something, not to gross you out, but the, 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 the weak old uh, Chinese food that you're throwing out, I promise you that any normal person from 1860 would eat it. And they wouldn't say, can you warm that up in a microwave? Because they don't, they don't know what a microwave is. They would just eat it. So think about this. We're heading into an age very, very soon. I mean, you all believe Mashiach is coming very soon, right? So we're heading very soon into an age where people are not going to be excited about the stuff that they used to get excited about. But like I said, that's not a prediction. That's current events. It's already true. It's already true. People are no longer excited about what they used to be excited about. So go try to bribe a child of 2022. You can't afford it. You can't afford it. And even if you could afford it, it would last for a tenth of a second. So I've got good news for you. The reason why it doesn't work anymore is because it doesn't need to work anymore. We don't need it anymore. We needed it. 
And when the Rambam described it, it was true. It was true for centuries and for millennia it was true. It had its place. But it's not true anymore. Nishtanu ativim, nature changed. So now there's something else that motivates children. What motivates children today? Ever since the Rebbe Rashab weeped to be able to see Hashem reveal himself to him? What works today is a child's sincere spiritual longing. You don't want to acknowledge it. You don't want to recognize it. Okay. So again, I'm speaking here in Crown Heights. You may choose to differ from the Labavitcher Rebbe. And hey, on YouTube, if you have a different Masoira, I have no tainas on you. But I'm speaking here Crown Heights. Labavitcher Rebbe said children don't need it anymore. And you keep using a system that doesn't work, and then you get frustrated that it's not working. And then you question, maybe there's something wrong with the kid. There was a critical system update that was offered back in the 1970s, 50 years ago. Children are different. Chinuch is different. The whole world is different. So uh, we got no choice anymore. And those of us who still have the illusion of the luxury of choice, I'm happy for you. I'm happy for you. I'm not saying that sarcastically. I'm happy for you that using outmoded, obsolete methods has not bitten you yet. I'm genuinely happy for you because... One of the reasons I'm here tonight and speaking about this is because I'm praying that people who are not in crisis, people who are successful right now in parenting, will hear this and decide to apply it. Because to be quite honest, the people who are in crisis are ready to try anything. That's low-hanging fruit. But why do you care if these orphans have parents, why can't we face the reality that we do when a child's in crisis? Why can't we face that reality before children are in crisis? Why can't we admit, like we do a, with a child who's in crisis, that the system doesn't work for him? Why can't we admit for children who are not yet in crisis, the system doesn't work for them? Because the system is a system that was beautiful and holy and and worked for centuries and millennia. It was a beautiful system. It's not the system today. And the problem and the defect is not with your child. And the problem and the defect is not with you. There's nothing wrong with you that you're not able to motivate your child with reward and punishment. That's not how people work anymore. That's not how you work. When the Rambam said that women need to be bribed to serve Hashem, I'm sure it was true then. But I'm talking to a room full of people for whom that's surely not true. You know it's not true for you. So I'm telling you, to expand that, 
It's not just you, and not just your best friend. It's all of us. There's no one left in the world who needs to be bribed to serve Hashem. And when you bribe someone to serve Hashem, you cheapen the entire idea of serving Hashem. You imply that serving Hashem is so inherently worthless that the only way to get somebody to do it is with a bribe. I'll tell you another story about a tzaddik that the Rebbe uses to tell a story about you. The Rebbe's birthday, Maimer. Just finished learning that my modem in Sem Base, Base Rifka, where I'm privileged to, uh, to teach. And we spoke about this, the young ladies there, 19 year old uh, young women, we spoke about this. The Rebbe tells a story in that Mimer about the Alter Rebbe, the Helika Alter Rebbe that the Alter Rebbe was so deeply engrossed in prayer that at one point he was heard, the Tzemach Tzaddik, his grandson, who we mentioned earlier, overheard him speaking to Hashem in Yiddish in the second person, meaning directly, and saying, Ich will nicht dein Gan Eden, ich will nicht dein Elam Haba, ich will mehr nicht als dich allein. I don't want your world to come. I don't want your paradise. I just want you. And you could read that story and say, what a beautiful story about the Alter Rebbe, the Heilike Alter Rebbe. And frankly, if I were left to my own devices, if I never learned the Rebbe's Torah and I just had to figure out Yiddishkeit on my own, I would also read the story that way. But you know how the Rebbe uses that story? He says that since the Alter Rebbe said it, really it reflects the truth of all of us. Like the Medrash says, Medrash Eicher Rabbah, that the soul cries out, Chelki Havaya, Nafshi, my soul declares, my chalik, my portion, is Hashem. I cannot divorce myself from Hashem. That's my destiny. It's who I am. It's my essence. So the Rebbe says, the Alter Rebbe's story about Ich will is really just a story about every Jew saying the truth, which is, I don't want bribes. I don't want Gan Eden, Elam Haba. And the Rebbe says, even he refers to it as Dein Gan Eden, which means your paradise. He's speaking to Hashem and saying, I don't want your paradise, I just want you, which is a way of saying, I don't want what you can give me I want you. I don't want to be in a user relationship with you, in a transactional relationship. I want to have an intimate bond. I don't want to be used, and I don't want to use. I want you to want me for me, and I want to want you for you. So forget about Oranges being a bribe, or shoes, or cars, or money, or covet. The Rebbe says that even Gan Eden and Elam Haba are a bribe. 
The Rebbe says even more radical than that, which is that bedakis shebedakis on a subtle level, if you really, really want to zoom in close, getting excited about what Hashem can do for you instead of being excited for Hashem himself, in a subtle way, is idolatry. Because what's idolatry? The idol worship says, hey, I want to figure out how I'm going to get the best payoff the soonest. So I'm going to do whatever works for me. If Hashem works for me, great. If the Getchka works for me, great. He's a total user. That's what an Eved Avedazara is. He's a user. So the fact, and, and, and the Yid says, no, I don't want what Hashem can do for me. I want Hashem. And if you'll tell the Yid, what if you'll suffer for it? He says, I don't care. So even being motivated by spiritual reward is beneath us today. It's beneath us today. It's not Chas Vashom saying there's no spiritual reward or no spiritual punishment. There is a Gan Eden. There is a Gehenna. These are real things. It's just not terribly motivating to someone who wants Hashem for Hashem's sake. Now you're going to tell me that's not true. I see with my kids, they don't want Hashem for Hashem's sake. I'm a teacher. I see with hundreds of kids, they don't want Hashem for Hashem's sake. So the Rebbe says in the Sikha, again, Crown Heights, watching on YouTube, not a Lubavitcher, you're off the hook. It's okay, you have a different Masada, no problem, you're off the hook. Crown Heights, maybe by the time I'm done, some of you will be moving to Borough Park, you'll be off the hook. No problem, no problem, okay? You'll find out what houses cost over there and you'll be happy. <laughs> it doesn't work today. It doesn't motivate people today. And you're going to tell me that you see the children are not that holy. They're not talking about God. Remember a kid crying to me. Not a kid. And a, I call him a kid. A young man from, from this neighborhood in his 20s. He was just bawling. And uh, he'd been really seriously involved in drugs and alcohol. And he came into recovery in the 12-step rooms. And it saved his life. And he was, he was sober for a few months already. When I, I remember talking to him, he was sober for a few months. Life was good. Like, life was, like, he, 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 when he hit bottom, he, he tried to kill himself. I mean, his life was terrible. This is three months after he got sober. Life was good. And he turns to me, he starts bawling. I'm like, thinking to myself, why is he crying now? Like, <laughs> life's good now. And he says to me, And this is Latayelis. I'm saying this for a benefit. But if you don't listen to me, then it's not for a benefit, and it's Stam Lashon Hara. He's weeping to me and saying, why did I have to go to a meeting in a church basement? And yes, ask your Paisik. It's Mutter. Why did, not the, where they daven, where they pray, but the, the basement, the social hall. He says, why did I have to go to a church basement and sit with people who I don't relate to, not from my culture, not from my background, not my age, to finally hear somebody speak sincerely about God. What was I doing all day, every day in yeshiva? 
And I didn't hear someone speak sincerely about God until I went to those meetings. It was bawling. The Rebbe says in the Sicha, Chelek Tezvav, Kutte Sichas, Pashas Vayero, that if you see that the children are not excited about God, then your responsibility as the parent or as the educator is to look inside, look within, and ask yourself how you're educating them. Why do you believe, why do you put more faith and trust and reliance in Pavlovian condition, conditioning that was developed for dogs than in the belief that your baby, your beautiful, precious child is a chelik elekami malmamish? Why is it easier to believe that he can be bought with treats than it is to believe that he has a neshama that's yearning for elokus? And don't tell me the schools. I don't want to hear about schools. I'm talking to mothers. Schools are institutions. Institutions are things. I'm talking to individuals. I only now speak to individuals because an individual at least care for your child. And by the way, there are wonderful individuals in the institutions. There are some incredible educators in the institutions and incredible administrators today in the institutions. But I'm not speaking to institutions. I'm speaking to human beings, to mothers, to fathers who have a heart, who have, a, who have skin in the game and a personal interest here. Your child does want God just for its own sake. I wouldn't dare, I wouldn't attempt to give this talk in many of the wonderful, beautiful communities that I have been privileged and honored to be allowed to speak in. Many wonderful Jewish Orthodox communities where they have trusted me to be respectful and to come and speak there. And I think one of the reasons that they do trust me is I wouldn't roll into Lakewood and say the Lubavitcher Rebbe says in Lakut Sichas that it's enough with the bribes. You know why? Because it's disrespectful. Forget about to each his own and everyone has their own approach. You have to learn so much before that sentence even sounds normal. Like why would you purposely, it's like lift naiver, why would you purposely say a sound bite that cannot possibly be understood without a hundred hours, a thousand hours of context. But this is Crown Heights, and I guess it's YouTube, but I think everyone else turned it off already. So I'm going to go look at the analytics, by the way, after we're done. It shows you when people drop off. Like right after the orphanage joke, it's going to be like, <laughs> that's it. Everyone left, no problem, okay? This is Crown Heights. The Rebbe says that your child sincerely wants Hashem. So here's the, here's the I don't know, funny part? Funny? Yeah, maybe funny. Um, if you did this in 1970 or 76 when the Rebbe first spoke about it, let's say you were at the Fabrengen and you heard the Rebbe speak about this in 1976, and you believed the Rebbe, and you cut out the bribes, and you just started believing that your, your, your child is, is a neshama that wants Hashem, then I would say, wow, you are a chassid. 
that is really chsiddish that you did that. But if you do it today, <laughs> you're just being a realist. You're just admitting that the old tools don't work anymore, and it's not our kids' faults, and it's not our fault. Okay. So now I want to talk to you about something that may seem a little bit different, but I wouldn't be giving you a complete thought if I didn't deal with it. There's a sicha. Oh, thank you very much. There's a sicha. Parshas Baleischa, this week, this week's Parsha, Tavshin Nun Aleph. It's the last Baleischa Sicha. And the Rebbe there is speaking about Baleischa Saneiros, lighting the candles. And uh, we know that metaphorically, Aaron lighting the candles also represents education. That the manner of hadlaka, hadlaka is kindling, like when you make a bracha, hadlik means to kindle. But here the Torah uses a word of aliyah, bahaloischa, Malashin aliyah, so rather than saying when you kindle the lights, it says when you lift up the lights. Rashi has to deal with that. Why is it using that peculiar phrase? So Rashi says that kindling could mean you kindle, you get in, you get out. What happened afterwards? I don't know. I did my part. Did it stay lit? I don't know. That's called hadlaka. I mean, bare, bare minimum, that, that's hadlaka. But bahaloischa means that you light the flame until it becomes self-sufficient. Until the flame rises of its own accord. So this is a, an allegory for Chinuch. What is education? Education is not that my child will do what I told them to do while I'm watching, but they will continue doing what I taught them even when I'm not watching because it becomes who they are, becomes integrated. In other words, they become self-sufficient. They become independent. That's the goal of Chinuch. You teach a child to ride a bike. You run alongside the child. You hold on to the seat. You don't let go. And then you start letting go for a little bit. And then you grab it again. And then you let go for longer. And then finally you take a few steps and you let them go. And then finally one day you watch them go around the corner. And then you come around the block. And your child can ride a bike. That's Baal Loischa Eshaneiros. 
So the whole purpose of Chinuch is to foster the independence of the child. Now what's interesting about that process, the Rebbe talks about this in the Sicha. By the way, these are rare words. I don't usually speak this way. I don't usually say the Rebbe says in a Sicha. I usually don't use those words, even though 95% of everything I say is from the Rebbe's Sichas. And I admit that freely. It's just, I don't normally say it because it doesn't add anything communicative. But in this room, for this audience, I'm just trying to remind you, I'm just trying to, rem- trying to remind you that, yeah, I know this stuff is radical. I know this stuff sounds different than what we're used to. I know it's even different than, than what you look around and you see Chesidah Yidin doing, which is the hardest Nesayim. But I'm just reminding you, the Rebbe says these, these things. So the Rebbe speaks about the fact that chinuch is interesting because by definition, it starts with dependence and it ends with independence. Sort of a paradox. By definition, it starts with dependence because if the madlik doesn't come along, if the person kindling the lamp doesn't come along, the lamp's not going to light itself. So in the initial phases, it's totally dependent. Think about an infant who's not just dependent for, for being taught right and wrong. In fact, an infant can't even learn right and wrong. They're dependent for their basic survival, right? And then as a child grows and matures, they become less and less dependent until finally they're not even morally dependent because they have their own internal moral compass. They know right from wrong on their own. That's the goal of Chinuch. So it's an interesting process. It starts with dependence. By definition, it's unavoidable. But it culminates, if done correctly, it culminates in independence where the child can now do what they were taught how to do on their own, without prompting, without supervision. Becomes natural to them, becomes their own nature. So... There's something funny in Parshas Baalescha. There's, according to some opinions, an entire sefer unto itself of Chumash contained in Parshas Baalescha. The Posik Vayhi bin Ha'arain, which we say when we open up the Arun Kedish in Shul. You know, it uh, has the little. The nuns, if you look in a, in a Sefer Tato or in a Tikkun Kedem. So uh, that's an entire Sefer unto itself. And if indeed one views it as a Sefer unto itself, what that leaves us with is seven Chumashim. I know that's an oxymoron because Chumash means Chumash, it means five. It's like, what's it called, the fifth, third bank? It's a bank out of Cleveland, Fifth Third Bank. Yeah, no one here from Cleveland. Fifth Third Bank, no one knows that. You guys looking at me like I'm crazy. Okay, Apple Bank. It has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but just wanted some recognition. Okay, Apple Bank. Totally off the point, but you guys, you forced me to do it. Okay. 
there are seven chumashim. Because, well, let's count it. You have Bereshis, that's normal. Sefer Bereshis. You have Sefer Shmois, that's normal. Sefer Vayikra, that's normal. But then what happens is Bamidbar is a Sefer up until Vayibin Seya. Then Vayibin Seya itself is its own Sefer. Then the rest of Bamidbar until the end of the Sefer is, is another Sefer. And then Dvorim is a, is a Sefer. So how many you end up with is seven. You end up with seven Svarim. So it's interesting. There are two different perspectives. They're both valid, valid perspectives. There's a, there's a valid perspective that Torah has five books, and there's a valid perspective that Torah has seven books. What's the difference between a five-book Torah and a seven-book Torah? A five-book Torah corresponds to Chesed, Gvurit, Tferes, Netzach, Heid. That's it. That's five. And a seven-book Torah has Yesod and Malchus. Now, what's the difference between the first five spheroids and the sixth and seventh sphero? The difference is that the first five spheroids are, like you talk about in Atzilos, Chesed through Hoid basically is only concerned with the operation of Atzilos itself. It's not really concerned with worlds below Atzilos. Yesoid and Malchus are external spheres, so to speak. Yesoid is chibor, is connection. What do you connect to? Something outside of yourself. Malchus is self-expression. To whom do you express yourself? Someone outside of yourself. So Yesoid and Malchus are the two spheres that represent outward connection or the outer reaches, the outer realms of the spheres. So there's one perspective of Torah that's five, and there's another perspective of Torah that's seven. The perspective of Torah that's five is that Torah is holy, Torah is abstract, Torah is pure, it's separate from the world, it's aloof from the world, just like chesed through Haid operate on their own level in Atsilas and they're not concerned with lower worlds. And that's a valid perspective of Torah. You can say, Torah is Kedusha. What, you want it to be relevant? You want it to be applicable? No, it's holy. It's way too holy to be relevant. <laughs> and I'm saying it, it tongue-in-cheek because we see how that perspective is such a failure, but it is a valid perspective, and it's a necessary perspective. And one has to preserve that idea that there's something called Kedusha Satoira. And sometimes you sit down and you learn a Gemara, and it doesn't matter if this sugya is ever going to apply to your life. You learn it for the Kedusha of it. You learn it to, like my friend with the Rishas Cold Seltzer says, to check out of life. You guys have to know what that reference is, right? No? Okay. Ask your, ask, you have teenage kids? Ask them to WhatsApp it to you. So... <laughs> Sometimes you just want to check out a life with an Arvei Psachim and a Rebbeinu David, and that's the five-faceted Torah. Torah, it's just chesed through hoid. It's just higher than the world. But then there's another perspective of Torah, 
a perspective of Torah that's chesed all the way down to Yisait and Malchus, and it does deal with the outer reaches. It does deal with world building and with time and space and finite realms and physicality. And Torah was meant to be applied in day-to-day life. That's the seven-fold perspective of Torah, which is also a valid perspective. And the perspective that most people today are craving. They're craving. How is it relevant? How is it applicable? You know the story about the guy, a farmer who's out in his field, and he sees a... He looks up, he sees a guy in a hot air balloon about 100 meters above his head. He looks up, and the guy in the hot air balloon shouts down to him, and he says to the farmer, he says, I'm lost, can you help me? So the guy in the, f- the farmer, the guy in the field says, yeah, how do you want me to help you? He says, I'm lost, I don't know where I am. Can you tell me where I am? So the farmer looks up and tells the guy in the hot air balloon, he says, you're in a hot air balloon. So the guy's like, right? yeah, I know I'm in a hot air balloon. Could you get more specific, like location? He says, you're about 100 meters off the ground. He's like, yeah, I know that. I'm, I'm trying to figure out my location. Like, in, like what am I near? How many miles from a, from a, from a landmark? I'm try- he says, can I ask you a question? The guy in the hot air balloon says to the, to the farmer, Farmer's like, yeah. He says, are you a rabbi? The farmer says, well, yeah. I, I mean, I'm a farmer also, but this farmer was a rabbi also. He's a rabbi farmer. He says, yeah, I, I'm a, I am a rabbi. How did you know? And the guy in the hot air balloon says, because from the moment I met you, you answered all my questions, and everything you told me was 100% true, but totally irrelevant. That's the five-faceted Torah. It doesn't have to be relevant. It's true. The seven-faceted Torah includes Yisrael and Malchus and says, Torah has to inform our living in this world, our relationships, our business dealings, our mental health. It has to involve everything. Okay. You're with me. You're following me, right? Okay. So here's the deal. This seven-faceted Torah that occurs when you break up Vayibin Sayah Ha'aren into its own Sefer, what Parsha, of all the 53 Parshas, all the 53 Torah portions, what Parsha is the Parsha where Torah becomes a sevenfold Torah? Which Parsha? Pa'aleischa, this, this week's Parsha. So you know the Rebbe's style. Nothing is coincidence, especially in Torah. It's got to be accurate. There's got to be a reason why Torah becomes a sevenfold Torah in Parshas Baalaischa. The Rebbe says, yeah, no brainer. It's an easy one to answer. You know why? Baalaischa has neiris. How many neiris? Seven neiris, seven candles. Okay. Oh, but that's cute. That's like a gematria, you know. <laughs> so eat another piece of kugel, right? It's not cute. It's very, very, very deep. What are the seven candles? I told you before. You forgot, but I'll remind you. 
lighting the seven candles is an allegory for chinuch. Lighting the seven candles means that the student becomes self-sufficient. Ad Until the flame is able to stand up on its own. And it no longer needs anyone to light it. It's going. It's That's what seven is. In order to light all seven candles, you have to engage all seven facets of the human being. Because these seven spheroids, they also exist within us. Like it speaks about in Peregimel of Tanya, that the Eser Koiches HaNefesh are a mirror image of the Eser Sphiris Lamaila, which means that if you want me to take Torah and make it my own, to master it and to install it as my own internal moral compass, and I no longer need someone watching over me and prodding and prompting, if you want me to become a flame that stands up on its own right, then you're going to have to engage all of me. Not just the first five facets that have to do with abstraction, but even the sixth and the seventh facets which have to do with my experience of life in the real world, in the physical world, with, with my emotions and my personality and my body, my physical experiences. You have to engage me on that level. And in fact, the Rebbe says even lower than that, because Yesaid and Malchus in Atzilas are external but holy. Yesaid and Malchus in lower Olamais, actually from that is Nishtalshal Klippa. And that a person could, God forbid, have a relationship with Klippa. But through having, God forbid, a relationship with Klippa, he can come back in a new way, which is called Teshuva, and B'mokim Shabali Tshuva Eindim, Afilu Tzadikim Gemurim Eindim Yechilim Lamed Bay. So really, what is he saying here? That for Torah to become integrated, and that's the word I'm using, integrated, so that the student really owns it, the educator has to engage every aspect of the student. Not just information. Our children are not brains in a jar. From the way they spend 90% of their day, you would think there's a bunch of brains in jars sitting in chairs and a brain in a jar on a table and there's a data dump. What do you do with the, what's the iPhone thing where you want to, what's the thing called? What? Airdrop, right. Airdrop. A bunch of brains in jars airdropping information to each other. That's a five-fold Torah. But that's not a Torah that a child will internalize and keep on their own. That's a flame. You have to keep relighting it, keep relighting it, keep relighting it, keep relighting it. It's exhausting. And finally you say, I quit. You're too much trouble. <laughs> I guess there's something wrong with your wick. If you don't engage every level of a child, that means... Not only the intellect. And how do we reward children? How do we tell them that they're good? Chiefly based on their ability to retain and regurgitate information. 
If you tell a child that his connection to Yiddishkeit is purely based on the ability to retain and regurgitate information, of course he's not engaged. And of course, he doesn't become a candle that can burn on his own. So the minute the teacher leaves the room, all bets are off. And the minute there's no more mashkiach checking in on your dorm, the minute you're out in real life, you're an adult, the minute you figure out how to hide from your neighbors and go under the radar from the social pressure or stop caring about the social pressure, you don't have an internalized moral compass that's true to Yiddishkeit. No one ever did that for you. They told you a bunch of stuff that they told you to believe them is true. And you said, how do I know it's true? And you said, you don't got to know it's true. You just got to know that it's true and that's it and just believe me. Well, if it's so true, I should see it in my life. I shouldn't have to learn Torah for Kedusha and go on YouTube and watch Jordan Peterson for relevancy. That is a churban. And that any frumayid who ever learned in yeshiva should have to go watch a YouTube pundit to be inspired is a churban. Now, I don't blame him for doing it because he was uninspired. He wanted meaning somewhere. But are you okay with this being the status quo? You're okay with the fact that a child goes through yeshiva and he comes out and he says, I didn't learn how to think until I went to college. I didn't learn how to feel until I went to therapy. That's okay with you? Not okay with me. Especially someone who's learning chassidus chabad should tell me that my mind and heart were so thoroughly engaged. My critical thinking, my creativity... What does it mean, I'm going to translate it in simple English. It means somebody who knows how to think for themselves. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't use social pressure to make people afraid to think for themselves and then wonder why they're dropping like flies. The only way to keep people in the fold today is to teach them to think for themselves. What are you afraid of? That they'll form a personal relationship with Hashem? Like the kid at the AA meeting? You're afraid they'll find it there instead of yeshiva? Give it to him in your home. Give it to him in the yeshiva. That's where he should have gotten it. So we have to engage children on every level. And that means not just brains in jars doing the uh, airdrop, but emotions. How did that make you feel? How did that make you feel? You learned a chiddush in a mimer from the Rebbe. The Rebbe said a chiddush. How did it make you feel? So unless a kid is really bright, and has a geschmack in learning because he's cerebral. So he might say, I liked it, I enjoyed it. But he's not even responding to the toichen of the, of, the, of the teaching. He's just enjoying the fact that he was able to chap. So he has a little bit of an emotional reaction. But I, I don't understand why even the least cerebral kid in the class shouldn't be asked, how did that make you feel? And I'm sorry, if you're the teacher, if the least cerebral kid in your class doesn't have an emotional reaction to the Rebbe's Chiddush, you've got to slow down, you're teaching too fast. Who are you trying to impress? 
but it goes even beyond that because it's not just intellect, not just emotion. We have lower faculties. It has to become physical. We have to feel it in our bodies. It has to be sensorial. Thank God we have a living Torah. Torah is not for brains in jars. Torah is for brains in bodies. In the meat suit. The physical body. That's why we have to go on more field trips to do more experiences. You can't just tell somebody about chesed. You take your kid with you. Mommy's going to bring soup to this uh, mommy who just gave birth. You have experiences like that, holding the, holding the hot soup on Friday afternoon and carrying it. And You have to be careful. You have to use the mitts so you don't get burned. And You're trying to balance it. That, that's education. Physical, sensorial experiences. Baruch Hashem Yiddishkeit is so full of that stuff. It's full of that stuff. The Rebbe spoke about, remember I came up here a couple hours ago and I, and I was talking about the, the decor? I was talking about it's important to create a physical space. Yeah, you know those, the, those props that we put in the kids' room? The Cheder Tzivaz Hashem, the Chumash, the, the Tilim, the, the Tanya, the Pushka? The Rebbe says that that's to create a physical experience. That's in order to concretize the abstract. That Yiddishkeit shouldn't just be ideas or theory, but that the child should be able to see and touch touch and, and, and to physically, you know, it has to be kinesthetic. It has to be, uh, you're in a space, in time and space. You're in this room and there are objects in the room. And, and that grounds you. That grounds you. And if you don't have that grounding, you don't have those objects, then what's Yiddishkeit? It's, it's, it's in space and you either you fly out into space or you say, I, I, you get terrified and you say, I can't go for this ride. And then you look for other things that ground you. And if you're just looking for grounding, you're looking for things that will stimulate the body, things that will soothe the nervous system. There, there are a lot of cheap, easy thrills that will do that for you if, God forbid, you don't have authentic, holy ways of expressing kol All of my bones will say, will declare Hashem's praise. It has to be tactile and kinesthetic and physical and sensorial. And that's why we shuckle when we daven. And that's why we daven with a coil, with a voice, so that it's physical, it's sensorial. But a child who's sensorially deprived will go out and look for sensorial stimulus. Oh, who'd have thunk? Who'd have thunk? So, means there are seven facets. You've got to deal with all of them. Even Yusoid, even Malchus, and it goes lower than that. It goes lower than that because I told you, Yusoid and Malchus actually with Ribuya Shtalshlis lends itself to a Nesinus Makim for Klippa. And what does that mean? That means that most people who will experience embodiment on this physical plane will experience spiritual wounding either at the hands of others or even self-inflicted spiritual wounds. If you want a child to be a shalhevas ha'elameh if you want them to internalize the teaching so it's not just you spying on them and prompting them and prodding them, but that they own it 
and it's integrated and it becomes who they are and they bring it with them wherever they go, you have to address all seven facets. And that includes even what comes from Malchus, which is the Nisinus Makim for Klippa, which means that if a child, and most of us do, if a child has a shame, a moment of spiritual brokenness, a moment of moral failure, you must bring Torah into that place too. And if you don't, don't be shocked that it's not viable. Don't be shocked that it has no kiyum. Because for the flame to remain lit on its own, even when you're no longer prompting and bribing and, and threatening and, and, and consequences, and all, when you leave the room and this ner is shining on its own, thinking for himself and feeling and experiencing and living in alignment with, with Jewish values because that's what they've chosen. Because that's what they value. Not because you bribe them and not because you threaten them, but because that's what they care about. You want that result? You want that Chinuch should culminate in independence and self-sufficiency? And if you don't, by the way, I have to self-censor a lot. There are people who don't want Chinuch to culminate in independence and self-sufficiency. And they have an interest in that. And that's all I'll say about that topic. But any mother has compassion on your child. And of course, the greatest nachas you could have is that your child doesn't need you. In fact, the greatest nachas you can have is your child surpasses you. So of course you want your child to become successful in their own Yiddishkeit in their own relationship with Hashem. Not because, did you bench? How long are you going to do that for? Did you bench? I got a letter from the Ami. I remember I used to write that weekly column. A woman wrote to me and asked, is it okay to remind my son to make brachas? And I read on, and the son is 35 years old. I mean, at what point are you going to stop that? So here's what I'm telling you. If you want a child who's self-sufficient, who owns their Yiddishkeit, then you're going to have to address every level of the child. Intellectual, emotional, physical, experiential, kinesthetic, sensorial, and even the stuff that's bottom of the barrel, nasty stuff, the failures, the shame, the brokenness going to have to bring Yiddishkeit there, which is actually pretty easy because we have thousands of my modem about tshuva. The tools were given to us. No one has to reinvent the wheel. No one has to reinvent the wheel. We have so much rich information to teach a child that Hashem is with them even in their brokenness, especially in their brokenness. So if you do that, if you have a sevenfold approach to Torah, which addresses all of the child, then you're going to have Nedais with a Shalhevis Ho'elameleha. They become self sufficient, independent. They know how to do it on their own. And now, just for fun, who's the one 
in the Chumash, who Hashem speaking to, Balais Chesaneir is telling him to do that? Aaron. And who's Aaron? What do we know about Aaron? Pirkei Ovis tells us, be like Aaron, or be like the disciples of Aaron. What do we know about Aaron? Aaron loved people, and not just people, he loved Briois. What are Briois? Briois means crea creations or creatures. It means somebody who you look at and you don't see any redeeming value unless you think to yourself, well, they are Hashem's creation, and that itself means they have infinite value. Who's the educator who's able to lovingly, without judgment, engage every aspect of a child, intellectual, emotional, physical, and even their brokenness? Only that educator or parent who is oyeves habriois, who sees inherent value in a person just because Hashem made them. Which is another way of saying that he finds value even in the lowest of human experiences. Not like the teacher or the parent who says, when my child will ask a bright question, then I'll be engaged and I'll give them a, a bright answer. Chinuch is engaging your child on the lower levels, making Yiddishkeit experiential and doing, doing projects and, and, and field trips and outings, and also on the lowest, lowest levels, dealing with their failures, dealing with their insecurities, their moral failures, their moral insecurities, the stuff that they don't tell you because they're afraid you're not an Aaron who's Oyev has a Briois. They're afraid that if you'll see the part of them that is Briois Ba'alma, that they'll be rejected. So, why did I tell you these two things? You're saying, you told me a thousand things. No, I told you two things. I told you two things. I told you two things. The one, the first thing I told you is that reward and punishment don't work anymore. We're in a new age, a new paradigm. They're not motivators anymore. Children want God. That was the first thing I told you. Remember that? Second thing I told you is the goal of education is to foster independence, self-sufficiency, that the child should go out and live in accordance with values and morals and ideals without being prompted or prodded or, or bribed or, or threatened, that they've totally internalized the moral compass on their own, and that the way to do that is to engage every aspect of them, to validate every aspect of them. So take those two ideas and put them together. If I can't even bribe or threaten my kid anymore, what's going to work? What's going to work? I'll tell you what's going to work. Connection. Real connection. Know your child. Know your child. You know, Levi Yitzchak said, I learned Avas Yisrael from two drunks. He said he was at a tavern 
In the old days, a lot of Jews owned taverns. It wasn't like today, like a bar of today. It wasn't like he was... I told this story once to a group. <laughs> this one Israeli guy, he got really... He's like, he's like you went into a club? <laughs> I said, yeah, he needed change for the meter. So... <laughs> In the old days, the Kretschma, you know, it was, it, was a, it was where people would buy drinks, but it was also an inn. It was a place to feed the horses. So Levi Yitzhak Badichev was in the Kretschma, it was in the inn, and there was the two drunk non-Jews, two Ivans, and they were drunk. And, you know, some people get fighting drunk. Some people are loving drunk. So they were loving drunk, and one of them was saying, I love you, man, or in Russian, however you say I love you, man. And uh, the other one was like, no, no, you don't love me. He's like, yeah, I love you, I love you, I love you. No, you don't love me. Yeah, I love you. No, you don't love me. And Levi Yitzchuk is watching this whole thing. And finally, the, the second guy says the first guy, you don't love me. If you loved me, then you would know what hurts me. When you can't fall asleep at 3 in the morning... You know what you worry about. In fact, maybe your child is one of the things that you worry about. Do you know what your child worries about? Each one of your children? Do you know your child? When your child is up at 3 in the morning, do you know what she's thinking about? What are her insecurities? What are her worries? And go and think about each one of your children. That is a million times more powerful than any stupid bribe. Connection. Knowing your child. Knowing them. Validating them. Accepting them. Showing them how to confront their own moral shortcomings with courage and with gentleness and with self-love, with the tools of chassidus that teach us how to do tshuva. That is a million times more powerful than any stupid bribe. So you're going to ask yourself, what can I use today? Nebuch, you're going to have to have a relationship with your child. You're going to say, but my child doesn't want to have a relationship with me. Every child wants to have a relationship with a parent. And if you want to know, go find out from people who are estranged from their parents. Even, even the people where the child cut off from the parent because the parent is dysfunctional. And find out how much that child, the, the adult child, mourns the loss of what they could have had if they had a normal parent. You go tell me that wound ever goes away. It never goes away. Because every human being yearns to be connected to their parents. So if your child is rebuffing your overtures for bonding, just be humble and consider the possibility that your child doesn't want to be made a fool of. Maybe they don't know that you're sincere. Maybe they don't trust you. That's okay. A parent has infinite patience. We have all the time in the world. We'll wait this out and we will earn our children's trust. We will prove ourselves worthy of trust. Well, who are they to expect me to prove myself to them? You know what? You're right. You're 100% right. You're right. 
you're right. And you're going to take your rightness and go all the way to the grave, making yourself and your child miserable. Maybe just a little humility and say to yourself, if I really believed that my child's entire success in life, their spiritual well-being, their religious observance, their relationship with God, their, their mental health, their emotional health, their social health, their physical health, all depends, or at least to a great extent, depends on how connected they feel with me. I think you can humble yourself to invest in winning their trust if you knew all that depends on winning their trust. And when we do that, when we give our children a holistic bond that engages every level of their selfhood, we give them a gift that is infinitely more precious than anything else that we can provide for them. And in fact, no one else can provide for them. There are great educators, there are great therapists and mashpiyim and all types of helping people who will step up and help a child. But what a thousand educators and a thousand experts can do for one child will never equal what one loving parent can do simply by providing a real bond. And that is so much more powerful than the bribes and the threats. The bribes and the threats stopped working because we don't need them anymore. But what do our children need? They need our love, they need our acceptance, they need our respect. And you can tell me that that's not how it was done. That's not what we saw from our parents, certainly not from our grandparents. You're going to say they did it wrong? No, they did it right. But nishtanu ativim, the world is different today. Critical software updates for your system are available and ready to be installed. Okay, everyone should have lots and lots and lots of nachas from their children, and their children should have lots of nachas from them. <laughs>